All right, so we are going to be looking at the 90th Psalm tonight. And um, so it is what is considered, and I'm following um, a guide in the sense of the order of these. Um, and there certainly may be differing opinions from what I understand on the order of the Psalms. But the chronological order, um, as Eric Lane lays out in his Focus on the Bible commentary here, this paperback by Christian Focus, uh, begins with Psalm 90. And it is a prayer of Moses. And so um, I don't think there'll be an objection to understanding that one of the first Psalms will be one that Moses wrote. It's replicated in other places in the Bible. We see the Song of Moses and we see this language showing up in other parts of Scripture. Uh, But we see in particular at the beginning of what's called Book 4 in the Psalter, we see uh, the 90th Psalm and my Bible puts a little title over it that's not inspired, From Everlasting to Everlasting. Largely, this Psalm is about the Lord, as all Scripture ultimately is chiefly about the glory of the Lord. And as we look at this psalm, it contains tremendous history, but it has a trajectory to bring us to prayer. And uh, so I want us to look at this this evening as we begin um, our study. And our aim is, of course, we can't get into all the details of it, but I believe we can glean something each week out of a psalm uh, and make our way chronologically through all of the Psalms um, over a several year period. And it gives us a great, um, really, survey of the entire Old Testament by doing so, as you'll see that this Psalm most likely arises out of an incident that happened in the book of Numbers. And uh, that's where we're going to go um, to begin with is the background. So the background of this psalm um, is going to be there in Numbers 21. So keep your, uh, your mark or something or your bulletin there in uh, Psalm 90 and turn over to uh, Numbers 21. And um, let's see, did I get that right? 21... Bear with me a minute. I'm making sure. Yeah, it's the 17th and 18th verse. Okay. So you're familiar with this story in particular um, in Numbers 21 because it's related to the most famous of all scripture verses, John 3.16. And um, it's the incident behind John 3.16 that we actually uh, look at. Uh, So let's look over numbers and let's see, 21. Make sure I'm getting the right one. I feel like I'm getting the wrong. Seven, actually. Okay. So four, let's pick up in verse four where the bronze serpents mentioned. It says, from Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom and the people became impatient 
on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. We loathe this worthless food. And then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. We have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that He take away the serpents from us. And so Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. And so Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Let me just read um, then Psalm 90 itself, because this is likely, likely the kind of thing that was prayed by Moses for the people. It could have been, in particular, a uh, one of many incidents, but this was most likely the incident that spurred on the the, uh, the psalm that we have here. And it says here, a prayer of Moses, the man of God, and that is the inspired text that is included. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before, we, you, have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy or even by reason of strength eighty. And yet their span is but toil and trouble, and they are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? And so teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord. How long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days and make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. And let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. One who has ears to hear, let him hear. Amen. So we have these scriptures before us. We have a background, a possible background text. If it isn't that text, 
Um, It's going to be one of the several incidents of God's wrath being unleashed on the people. So we know it's going to be somewhere there after having uh, come to Numbers 13 in particular, we find that they rejected what God told them to do. They were to go into the land. The spies brought back an evil report. And then you unravel the whole problem there in Numbers. But by the time um, Numbers 21 comes, you have this incident of wrath coming out. And so um, Eric Lane pinpoints that this is likely the incident behind the psalm. And I think it's convincing as you read especially um, the statements concerning the wrath of God in verses 9 um, through 11. There's a real crisis there. And one of the keys, especially Robert Godfrey helps us to see in the Psalms, is to, in particular, look for the center of the psalm. Um, A lot of times there are parallels on the beginning and the ending of it. Not always, but a lot of times there are. And in the center, there is a particular focus that the psalmist is getting at. And in this particular psalm, the focus, the center, if you will, is found there in really a famous verse there. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. And um, so with that being, being the focus, uh, in light of the wrath that they're experiencing, um, everything really has to take on the meaning from that. Um, seeking a heart of wisdom so that we might live in this fleeting life well, knowing that we live in a world that is uh, under wrath. And we know it's under wrath because there's still death in the world. And death is a clear sign of the wrath of God against sin. If you remember in the very beginning in Genesis, we see that our first parents believed the lie and Satan had brought doubt to the Word of God. And as he brought doubt to the Word of God, and he said, did God really say? Um, That was really the second problem. The first problem was Adam and Eve likely added to the Word, setting up ways in which they would avoid breaking the command. And so we see that that didn't help. And then the only people that ever lived on the face of the earth who had the ability to resist sin went and sinned against God, openly, knowingly, rejecting His Word. And as a result, what they said happened. They surely died. And throughout history, we see in every death and every loss a striking reminder of what the psalmist is talking about. We don't have serpents going out and biting the people but we do have the wrath of God revealed and we see it anytime we're at a funeral and anytime we hear of a loss. This world is still experiencing awful wrath and the question is, how do we live in it wisely? And the psalmist is getting at that. Moses is in particular. He's called the man of God because he's a prophet and as he's spoken of that way, it would be a reference to a prophet. You see Elijah being called such. And others. I'm depending heavily upon a few sources that inform me, and I mentioned some of my uh, recommended. Um, Calvin, 
Uh, didn't lean as much on him this week, um, but I did find I did find several that were that were quite helpful. Um, in particular, of course, Eric Lane's book here, and I just want to read um, the brief introduction to what he says about about this psalm because I think it captures where we want to go. He says here that. This is the earliest psalm in the Psalter. It was not the only poem or song to come from his hand. The triumphal ode recorded in Exodus 15 called the Song of Moses. He wrote a further song to accompany the housing of the book of the law and the Ark of the Covenant and his blessing the tribes of Israel before his death is also in this in verse. Uh, there are other poetical fragments. The song they sang as they left the camp carrying the Ark, the ode to the well at Beer, and the curse on Heshbon and Moab, and even parts of the law itself take a verse form. But the psalm entitled here is a prayer because it's addressed to God. While most psalms are songs of praise, many are prayers like this one. It was composed at a time when numbers of people were being struck dead as a judgment on their sins, verses 5 through 8. Occasions when this happened included the people's Complain about their diet of manna in Numbers 11.33, their discouragement over the report of the spies in Numbers 14.26-45. The one that fits best, however, here is Numbers 21.4-7, when the further murmuring over food provoked a plague of venomous snakes from God. In Numbers 21.7, the people request Moses to pray for them, which he does. In Psalm 90 is probably the prayer he prayed. Verses 3 and 5 refer to the sudden death overtaking them. Verse 7 indicates this was a visitation on the whole nation. And verse 8 speaks of literally secret lustings, referring to their discontent with the manna and longing for food from Egypt. Numbers 21, 4 through 5. It may be objected that the average lifespan of 70 to 80 years mentioned in verse 10 was not in force at the time, but the longevity of such as Moses, Aaron, Caleb, and Joshua was exceptional and no doubt due to the nation's need of these great leaders for a long time. In some cases, it was a reward for their outstanding godliness. And that shows up later in the next Psalm, 91.16. Most of the people must have lived less than 100 years old, and probable meaning is that the average lifespan was brought in during the desert period and soon became universal. Later, leaders such as Samuel, David, and Solomon lived only 60 to 70 years. So, so that's Eric's Lane synopsis, not the details of it, but that's his synopsis of what this psalm is and what's going on in the background that's so vital for us to understand um, the point that he's making. Um, another help that, that I found um, in studying this uh, in particular was in the Preaching the Word commentary, um, through Crossway, um, there's some very helpful statements there by, I think it's the, the pronunciation of the author uh, is Eon, and I think it's Do Good, Do Good, it looks like um, Do Good, uh, but he's a very reputable um, scholar and professor. His numbers commentary is excellent, and I happened to run across um, that this week and found it to be vital in understanding some things. I'd love to read of the whole of it in this section, but I'm just going to read a part. He says, The serpent on the pole, back in Numbers, 
was not a magical cure for a snake bite. However, on the contrary, it was a sign that worked by taking the Lord at his word through faith. And the people were to look intently at the bronze serpent, putting their trust in the power of the Lord's victory over evil. And then they would be healed. It's not coincidental that the Lord chose this means of healing the people. For faith is the key marker of those who would enter the promised land. The unbelieving generation of their parents, including Moses and Aaron, were excluded from the land because of their unbelief. The judgment by the fiery serpents would similarly eliminate any from the new generation who were lacking in faith. For those who refused to look to the Lord through the bronze serpent would die. And only those who believed could enter the land. For only those who believed would live. Um, So this was all spurred on by grumbling. It was all spurred on by grumbling about what God gave the people that was sufficient for them and good for them. And their grumbling was taken as unbelief worthy of judgment. And I take that very seriously as I read the psalm that as we begin the new year, it seems there's a great charge here in this first psalm to be ever so careful to be content with God's providence and to be careful about our complaining. To be content with God's providence and to be very careful about our complaining. And I believe God is a gracious God as He has explained to us not only from this text, but also the connection to John 3.16 as we read later. He's gracious and I don't think He's sending fiery serpents among us if we are complaining or discontented people. Thanks be to God. But I still think He's the same God who believes this sin is a sin worthy of wrath and judgment. And we need to be very careful of complaining and not being content with His providence in our lives. Because these, just like we, demonstrate attitudes that were worthy of judgment. And the question is, why aren't we judged? When the fact of the matter is, is we've probably complained about less and we've probably been discontent in life more. And I think, I think the Gospel makes all the difference. Don't you? The Gospel... Um, how, how blessed we are. Let's carry that theme from the morning. How blessed we are to have been born in the time we're in. To be given the explanations of the good news that we have. So clear. More clear than they ever had. They still had enough that they should believe on the Lord. But we have been given so much more. We've been given so much of a blessing to be able to read and know God's clear will for life. And I want to read John 3.16 because if, if you didn't know, this, this incident in Numbers, and if, if uh, Mr. Lane is right, this uh, background um, to the psalm, the psalm itself also will be connected to this uh, teaching by Jesus in John 3. As it says in verse 14, uh, 
And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. And then it goes into that great verse, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes, remember the Amen from this morning, the Aman is the Hebrew, but it sounds just like Amen. It's the yes, it's the affirmative. Whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. And something else that's in the background of all this is that these things were written as examples for the church that we might not become idolaters as they were those who God was displeased with. That shows up in 1 Corinthians 10. So we are, we really are people that are amazingly blessed with the revelation of Scripture to protect us. And the mercy and and grace of the Lord to uh, bless us. Now, let's look at Psalm 90 in particular in in form of the outline uh, here. First of all, in the first two verses, you see here uh, the eternality of God. Most will be commentators will say the same thing. You're speaking about God here and His um, eternality, who He is. And He is, he is one who um, clearly is the dwelling place uh, that Moses looks to, the place, the only safe place where man can reside and have safety and security and protection. The way Moses looked at it is, I want to be where God is no matter what. And you see that in his life over and over and over again. It's a great encouragement to me as we look at um, the, tri- uh, the, the uh, transfiguration mount that you have Moses there. It's really an awesome thing. Um, the man who didn't get to see the promised land because his purpose was laid out, his lot in life came to a limit. Um, yes, there was sin involved. Yes, there were things that prevented him tangibly speaking. But it was God's sovereign will that Moses, who largely represented the law, couldn't take people into the promised land. Joshua only could do that. Moses, representing the law, the law can never take people into the land of promise. Joshua and our Yeshua, Jesus, is the only one that can actually deliver us into the land to take possession of it. It's the lesson of the Old Testament and it's replicated in the journeys of the New. Um, So again, we have one Bible made up of 66 books with great clarity about God's message over and over again. I found that this idea of a refuge was greatly comforting to me. Um, it says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth of the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And I think the idea here that, that Moses gets at is that God is so unlike frail man. We've just talked about the frailty, the limited amount of time that every human being, the greatest of all human beings, would have on earth. And men great like David, like Samuel, like these great men, would be given a limited amount of time on earth. 
God, because of their frailty, because they are flesh, because they are subject to the consequences of sin entering the world. They do not escape that. God is from everlasting to everlasting. So it tells me and it tells you that any stability we would want in this life has to be found in Him. Any strength, any, any security, any protection, if it is to be had, it has to be from the One who's from everlasting to everlasting. We need not seek any refuge in frail humanity. Humanity at His best uh, is able for a short time to provide what we need. But we know God from everlasting to everlasting is stable and strong in a place we can dwell forever. As we were at Psalm 23 last week, that we can have confidence when the Lord is our shepherd, that His goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life and we will dwell in His house forever. It's a journey from the beginning of life to the end of life. We can have the absolute confidence in Christ that we will be taken care of because we are in Christ Jesus. We dwell in Him and He in us. And so these first two verses are so, so important. I want to dwell on them just a moment as Charles Spurgeon provides a great amount of spiritual fodder for us to glean. It says, or he says, the Lord, he says, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. We must consider the whole psalm as written for the tribes in the desert. And then we shall see the primary meaning of each verse. Moses, in effect, says, wanderers though we be in the howling wilderness, yet we find a home in thee, even as our forefathers did when they came out of Ur of the Chaldees and dwelt in tents among the Canaanites. To the saints, the Lord Jehovah, the self-existent God, stands instead of mansion and roof, roof tree. The sh- he shelters, He comforts, He protects, He preserves, and He cherishes all His own. Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests. But the saints dwell in their God, and have always done so in all ages. Not in the tabernacle or the temple do we dwell, but in God Himself. And this we have always done since there was a church in the world. We have not shifted our abode. King's palaces have vanished beneath the crumbling hand of time. Let me just pause. The idea of that abode shows up in particular in Leviticus. Um, I mentioned, uh, though I mentioned the wrong author last week, Michael Morales wrote the book on who will ascend the, house, the, the hill of the Lord the mountain of the Lord. And in that book, he makes the argument with biblical theology that the Bible and the whole of it, especially the Pentateuch, is all about completing the desire of God that His people would dwell with Him and He with them. That's the trajectory. Don't we see it? I mean, He sent His Son so that would be made possible. And so all of the Bible points to um, our, our, our domain being a place where we are with God and God with us. God has always wanted to dwell with man. But in order to do that, sin had to be conquered. Satan had to be conquered. And everything else that would get in the way of us having right fellowship with Him would have to be conquered. And He did that in His Son. So this idea of the abode or the dwelling place of God is something that will show up throughout all of Scripture. Not just in Psalm 90. Um, and not just in Psalm 23. Uh, so let me continue 
go, go to the uh, Palatine and see how the Caesars are forgotten of the halls which echoed to their despotic mandates and resounded with the plaudits of the nations over which they ruled. And then look upward and see in the ever-living Jehovah, the divine home of the faithful, untouched by so much as the finger of decay, where dwelt our fathers a hundred generations since, there dwell we still. It is of New Testament saints that the Holy Ghost has said, he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in God and God in him. It was divine. It was a divine mouth which said, abide in me, and then added, he that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. It is most sweet to speak with the Lord as Moses did, saying, Lord, thou art our dwelling place. And it is wise to draw from the Lord's eternal condescension reasons for expecting present and future mercies, as the psalmist did in the next psalm where he describes the safety of those who dwell in God. And we, we could go on, but you get the point that this idea of dwelling in the Lord is, is our destiny. It is what we were made for. Yes, we're made to glorify God but we're made to glorify God in His presence. There is nothing more important than for the human being that is separated from God to be brought to God out of wrath, out of the domain of darkness, and into the kingdom of His beloved Son. And if you've trusted Jesus Christ by faith, that is what you have. You have been placed in Christ Jesus. You have been united to Him who is fully God and fully man. And therefore, you have been put in a place of safety that will outlive your days and outlive your flesh and will give you new flesh as the resurrection on the final day is promised. So this is a wonderful text. All generations, all generations, this same text would apply for a hundred years from now. This same text being proclaimed to a congregation in this same place would benefit from being reminded that their dwelling place is God. A thousand years from now, if God tarries His coming, the same would still be applicable to a people who loves and knows the Lord and trusts in Him. They are a people who have been placed in Christ, in the everlasting God. And, and so we move from verse 1 and 2, this stability to this contrast. And it's a good reminder, is it not? that let's, let's be reminded that who God is, but let us also be reminded of who man is. And isn't that what Calvin taught, that theology is really wrapped up in those two questions of who God is and who man is, and they interchange back and forth because to know who God is will help you to see rightly man. And if you look at who man is rightly, you're going to need to look to God. Uh, so that's what he does. He goes and he... He speaks of the result of living in a world that has been under the curse. You return man to dust. And um, you know, time is not affecting God. He's from everlasting to everlasting. He's outside of time. Um, I think it, it refers to his patience. Because we read those verses later when when the mockers and scoffers are scoffing at the people there in Second Peter about where, where is this coming? And they just scoff at them. And, of course, Peter says, 
you will be judged. And they were. They faced judgment before God. But it's said there in that text, um, chapter 3 of Second Peter, that um, a day before the Lord's like, you have like a thousand years, thousand years like one day. In other words, he's, he's pointing out a lesson, and the lesson is he's patient toward the church. Because he will, he will actually not allow any to perish. There won't be anybody for whom God sent His Son to be lifted up on a cross to die for who will die eternally. There won't be any whom He chose in eternity to be His who will perish. But there is a call. There is a responsibility on the part of man that those who will be saved must look to Christ. They must trust in the Lamb of God. They must do like Numbers 21 indicates. They must believe and look. They must look to the object to which God pointed them to to be healed. And as it's told us, what it was really about was we must look to Christ. And that's not just believing He exists. We must look to Christ and not believe merely exists, but that He indeed is the Savior of the world. And by looking and resting, it, it speaks often in the Bible, um, belief in God, belief in Christ in this way is belief upon Him, resting. And that's, that's the right way to begin the year. As Christians, we, we begin from rest every week. Every week is setting apart the, the day of the Lord, not merely to have ceremony and ritual, but it's so that we would have a, a rest that we work from. And there's no really there's no there's no way to work effectively if we don't start with the reminder of who God is and who we are. And by the end of this, of course, you see that's it's working in that direction, the work of our hands. How can the work of our hands be blessed in 2024 if we don't start out right with God, seeing who God is and seeing who who man is? Man is frail and fleeting in life. He's a mist. He's a vapor, James says. He can't predict tomorrow, but God is from everlasting to everlasting. So there's this lament, this, this frailty. And he says, you sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a dream, like grass that's renewed in the morning. In the morning, it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening, it fades and withers. We are brought to an end by your anger. And that's where it really gets real is the fact that God's anger is unleashed upon man for sin. And we don't like that part naturally about God, but that is part of God. All of God includes that He is angry against sin and He is also loving to sinners. He is all that at the same time. You don't, you don't piece apart God. You don't pull Him apart for how you want Him to be. You don't shape God. God shapes you. And so when we're looking at this text, we have to accept the truth set forth as the anger of God is set forth. And there upon this world, the sadness and the sin and the difficulties in it is a result of God's wrath consistently being set forth in this world. And uh, it says here that, that all our days pass away. Well, I skipped a verse. You've set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. It's, it's, it's that which we lay our heads down at night 
And we know who we are. We know our faults. We know most, the scariest thing is to realize God knows it all. Um, you know, Cain was one who he thought he could hide from God. Um, but sin was crouching at the door. Um, you see, the man who was in there, the book of Kings, who thought he would dress like a, a regular soldier and go out into the field. And it says just an arrow by chance takes him out, just as was prophesied. No, you can't hide from God. The piercing arrows of God. And thanks be to God, this is the case. That He lovingly, if He didn't love us, He wouldn't reveal the fact that He's angry at sin in our lives. He's angry at where, where we dishonor, where we fail. And you know, He doesn't reveal those things to, to condemn us. Isn't that what John 3 17 says he didn't send his son to condemn the world. He sent his son to save us. He sent his son to deliver us. He wouldn't even talk to us. He owes us nothing. But here, his children are objects of his love. And he calls them to turn and be saved. And they will. Because the power of the gospel will retrieve by the Spirit all whom his son came and died for. The blood of the cross is so powerful as it will emit the faith that's needed for us to turn to him and be saved. In other words, not even our, we don't have even the ability to look to the cross. We would shun it. But God provides everything because he's from everlasting to everlasting. The reality, all we can do is say, these are the realities. All our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of your, our life are 70, and even by reason of strength, 80. That, of course, is not a in-stone thing. It's Moses reflecting on the fact of these limited periods that as he almost proverbially observes, perhaps, the limited scope that even the greatest of men are just living to 70 to 80 years. And how fortunate we are how fortunate we are that, that many we know live way past that. And um, they can make the goal of being on that smucker's jar, right? Hit that 100 mark. That's the goal, right? Get on the smucker's jar. And you have your face on there. So have some goals, people. Make some resolutions. Live to be 100. How in the world is it going to be one day that the Bible says prophetically that the young man will be 100 years old? Well, those are promises. Um, this world is, is not going down the tubes. The gospel will change this world. The gospel will allow us to see days in which Moses just it, couldn't fathom. I mean, he went up on the mount with Jesus. He had things to talk about with him. I mean, there's questions. We don't have all the answers. We don't even have the right questions sometimes, but we certainly don't have all the answers. What we do have is Scripture. And what Scripture says is there are bright days ahead for his church. There's days coming and when the young man will be 100 years old. You see, we have so much clarity even beyond what Moses had. Moses could go so far, but we, we understand that Moses, he's reflecting, he's lamenting like we might tonight. We might not say 70, 80. We may, we may be say 80, 90. We say it's still so fleeting, isn't it, in the whole scope of things? It's too short. But we long for the day when people are living hundreds of years.
We long for the day that people can live without disease and can live joyfully with, the, with strength and, and to be able to call a man who's 100 a young man. That would be a glorious day, wouldn't it? But it's in Scripture. We can't fathom that because we haven't experienced that. But just because we haven't experienced it doesn't mean it won't come to pass because God has promised those things to happen. And we have to trust His Word because He really did say those things. But here the lament goes on and he says that the span is toil and trouble. It almost sounds like Ecclesiastes, the, the preacher speaking. He sees nothing but toil and trouble. I remember one of the little catechism songs we used to have playing in our house by Dana Dirksen. Toil and pain. Toil and pain. It's about the fall. Uh, it's a good hit. You ought, to, you ought to get that. I think it's in the back there. There's a few CDs if you want to grab hold. Just pick up the fall CD. One of y'all can get that and make copies for others. But uh, uh, yeah, toil and pain. Great, great, great hit to sing around the house. Um, encourage your heart. So, well, this is the center who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? And um, I was reading in another study this week about the rooster. It was in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. When the rooster crows, it is a reminder of judgment, isn't it? Peter, the rooster crowing. Um, it's a reminder of man's failure. But it's also a reminder that God's grace and God's knowledge and God's omniscience um, because Peter, though he denied the Lord three times, um, Christ had special love and care for even Peter. And, um, but you know, that's a reminder. As the cock crows, imagine what it was to Peter every time he heard it. We hear it. Those who know our Bibles, we hear things like that. It's a reminder of judgment. But you know, the reminder of judgment that we all hear and see all the time is death. Every time there's death, every time someone dies, it's really a merciful, a merciful call to repent, to make sure our lives are right with God. And isn't it, as Solomon said, better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting? Why would he say something like that? He's observing in wisdom that when you go and have to face the reality that life is limited in regards to the flesh, it gives you a heart of wisdom. This is what Moses prays here. He says, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. And that's the first part of his prayer. So he moves from, from God's eternality to man's frailty. And just like many of the Psalms do, he moves with faith that God makes all the difference. Man's frailty doesn't have the last word. God's mercy does. And thanks be to God, we have a cross and we have an empty tomb. And it tells us resoundingly that the last word and the authority of everything that happens in life is because of Him who is not just a wrathful God, but a loving God. And at the same time. And so, He punishes our enemies. He rewards the righteous. He takes us through what we need to to be conformed to the image of Jesus. He does all that. But what does he pray for? I think we should meditate on this to close. And that is first, he prays for wisdom. Have you prayed for wisdom? 
at the start of this year, would you ask God, Lord, help me to be wise in the life that remains for me. Help me to be wise in this year in light of the brevity of my life and the eternality of your being. Number two, he says, return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Have you prayed for God's mercy? You know, on our best day, we deserve wrath still. On our best day, we fall short of the glory of God and are sinners, and sin deserves wrath. And so, have you, have you contemplated that our longing for something to be different requires the mercy of God? We can't say, Lord, look at what I've done. You need to make things different. No, that, have you come to God rightly and asked, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, this year. Be merciful to me in the days that go forward in my life. I can't ask it on the basis of my works or my merit or what I've done, but I can ask it on the basis of your mercy. You're the everlasting God. And I know who you are. And I know I can come to you as my father and ask you for that. You will have it upon me. Third, satisfy me in the mor- satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. I think it was John Piper who taught me to pray this among many prayers. Um, Used an acrostic, I-O-U-S, incline my heart to your word, not to selfish gain. Unite my heart to fear your name because um, our, our hearts get so divided and fearful. Um, open my eyes to see wonderful things in your word, Psalm 119. Um, I-O-U-S is here. Satisfy me. Satisfy us in the morning. Um, this would be a good one to remember. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. That's his covenant love. That's love based on his promise that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. That's love based on His grace. That's a good prayer to pray any day, especially a good prayer to pray at the start of the year. Um, Fourthly, let our work, your work, I mean, be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Look at the generational hopes. He's, He's not looking at Okay, well, the limitness of man is one thing. But he believes what he does and what God does through him in this life will go on to other generations. It will matter. Your, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Your labor is not in vain. But then it leads to another prayer. And that is, Leading up to uh, in verse 17, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. And here it is, establish, strengthen, establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. What better thing to come to the Lord and say, all I do this year, all that we attempt to do uh, individually as a church or, or anything that we do, Lord, may you establish it. It's nothing without you. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain that build it. We need you, God. You're from everlasting to everlasting. And, you know, let it be, let it be that our commitment personally and as a church truly doesn't forget who is from everlasting to everlasting, where our refuge is, where our safety is, where we dwell because Christ has placed us there versus where we often day in and day out are tempted to flee to. We're tempted to flee to man whose breath is passing and who, whose flesh perishes. Man is a very poor refuge. 
God in Christ is an everlasting refuge. And so if anything we, we do in the coming year, it should be our prayer for His mercy. It should be prayer for grace. It should be prayer here for a daily joy, a wonder, a satisfaction as we awake in the day and open His Word and seek His face. And, and that we would see His work God's God's very much working all over the world and through all all sorts of faithful ministries. And and we should be asking God, open my ears and eyes to see that because it's confirming and it's strengthening and it's encouraging when you're, you're hearing and you're seeing God's work. Show me God's work and then make me part of God's work. Make us strong in the work of the Lord and make our work effective because we know it can't be effective and fruitful without the Lord. And that's not just the way we would judge it. Help us to see when it is. Help us to see it, again, like we said from this morning, from God's perspective. Um, from God's perspective. And in the benediction time, I'll say a few things about, about this, but I think one of the things to matter is not even your usefulness is what defines being blessed. A lot of people think, well, you know, I just don't feel very useful. That's not what defines you as a blessed man or woman. There's something much more that's related to God that really, really defines the blessedness that you have in Christ Jesus. And, and I believe that for every, every one of you. I believe that... Um, you who have signed your names on the diet line of following the Lord and trusted Christ, that the blessings that we announce here in this church are absolutely, 100%, without a doubt, yours in Christ Jesus. And, and, and that's the way, as I meditated and studied this week, I wanted to start the year just, just being able to go out of here with a sense of God's blessing. To know we are amazingly a blessed people. And when we start from that, it'll, it'll really change. It'll change the way we live. It'll change the way we think. Um, when we get that, nobody, nobody gets that, goes out grumbling, complaining, and being discontent because they have realized how full of a blessing infinitely they have in Christ Jesus. So it is my prayer to join with you in this prayer at the beginning of 2024 that God would grant these things to us. We'll come back for the benediction, but let's stand together for a time of song. And as our musicians come, you'll want to turn, O oh God, my joy, number 100, O oh God, my joy.